Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. Globally right now, the incentives, the subsidies, are skewed um, massively towards industrial agriculture. And if we could flip those subsidies to support communities, indigenous peoples, farmers, etc., in their efforts to bring forests back, I think it could have a massive massive impact, but we worry, we wring our hands about, you know, deforestation and about the costs of, of restoration and so on and so forth. And at the same time, there's a huge economic bias towards the very activities that are causing those problems. Um, and if we could reverse that, I think that would be hugely significant. I'm very pleased to welcome today on the podcast Mamta Mera and Cyril Cormos. Mamta is a senior fellow at Drawdown, She's an environmental professional with expertise in climate change, agriculture, and natural resource management. Mamta is currently working as a consultant on environmental and livelihood-based projects with national and international organizations. Cyril Cormos is executive director at Wild Heritage, a project of Earth Island Institute, and he has served as vice chair for World Heritage on the International Union for Conservation of Nature's World Commission on Protected Areas since 2012. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you, Cyril. Thank you, Mamta, for joining me today on the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the, for the invitation. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you today about land use, a tremendously important solution, series of solutions, tremendously important sector in Drawdown and offering uh, quite some imaginative and uh, important solutions to deal with carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, Maybe just before we go into details about the different solutions that you've looked at, if you could just tell me a little bit about your background to begin with. Well, my background is in law and policy, so I'm not a scientist. Uh, I studied international relations and then went to law school. And I have been working since since I started law school, actually working part time uh, in the nonprofit sector for uh, conservation NGOs uh, and uh, worked in Washington, D.C. for about six years and then came back uh, to California and have been working for uh, nonprofit since um, uh, the Wild Foundation. Uh, initially based in California, now in Colorado, and I'm now starting my own project at Earth Island Institute called Wild Heritage. Great, great. So I'm an environment professional with more than 90 years of experience in the climate change and land use sector, and uh, my educational background is master's and doctorate degree from Terry University, India, on issues related to resource management. Um, I'm currently working as a senior fellow for the land use sector with Project Drawdown, and here I'm working on the modeling aspect, especially the biosequestration modeling of um, drawdown land use as well as food solutions. So in the land use, we have uh, solutions like forest protection, restoration, etc. Fantastic, fantastic. So land use, can you just maybe give me a, a little bit of an overview of what's involved, what, what, what this entails and why it's important? Sure, sure. So um, 
in the at project drawdown we have different sectors and land use is also one of the sector and the importance of land use sectors and the solutions we have uh, are of great importance uh, the reason being is about the uh, the enormous amount of carbon which is stored as a sink either in the form of plant biomass or soil organic carbon is huge so there are question that how to keep those carbon sink uh, as intact and also because these resources or these uh, uh, these forests either we talk about forests and other resources they are also the continuous source of carbon sequestration as we go uh, in, in the timeline but the what is happening is that we are actually degrading our resources and the rate of degradations are varying sometimes it's very high and sometimes it's it's low i mean people are talking about in the forest sector we are also having reforestation we are having afforestation plantation but if you see the net result the degradation is still over there and the degradation impact is such high our meta analysis has shown you know the the clearing of forest in in a 1 hectare land result nearly 315 Uh, tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere so you can understand the intensity of the emission associated with those um, those forest resources so that's why uh, it is very important to understand the you know the uh, the the importance of these uh, solutions especially in the global climate change discussions where they are they are not you know as a forefront whenever we have climate change discussions people largely talk about uh, energy sectors transportation sectors but our research has shown that these solutions are equally important and have huge impact fascinating fascinating what is carbon sequestration and why does it matter the carbon sequestration is a natural process uh, the photosynthesis which takes place in the in the plants where uh, the plants store the carbon Uh, in the through the photosynthesis cycle either in the form of plant biomass or within the soil so we have two above ground biomass and the below uh, ground biomass so the below ground biomass is actually the carbon which is stored in the in the complex form uh, in, uh, which is called as soil organic carbon but when you expose the soil when you deforest it or degrade it those carbon which is in the complex and stored form gets you know oxidized and it really comes into the contact of oxygen and that carbon and oxygen combine together and release into the atmosphere as co2 and that's leading to greenhouse gas emissions and eventually the global warming right right very interesting now what did you know in advance about the impact and the importance of land use you've you've mentioned uh, mamta that this tends not to be something that is highlighted in climate change uh, and global warming discussions uh, when we look at co2 emissions so when when drawdown sat down to look at this and did the research i'm just wondering whether one or two things that uh, you'd highlight that was interesting and new from the research sure uh, so we have done the research for nearly 80 solutions across different sectors as i've said that you know energy is one of the sector building is one of the sector transportation land use food sector and after doing that uh, global level analysis we have ranked the solutions in the order of their climate impact over a period of 30 years so our analysis period is from 2020 to 2050 and when we have you listed down the top 20 drawdown solutions imagine there are only 
from the electricity sector and four out of 20 drawdown solutions are actually from the land use sector and eight from the food sector i mean this was this finding was really very surprising to us because nowhere you know whenever as i've said that in the climate change discussions whenever we talk about the first thing is about renewables 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 so now with our analysis and whenever we are i mean it's been uh, close to one and a half years that drawdown book has been published and people are really now talking about uh, these land use based solutions and also one thing which we have noticed in the publications and in the literature that the word drawdown is now in in place initially it was nowhere i mean people were talking about climate change adaptation mitigations but now drawdown has been um, more frequently used in in science in scientific uh, discourse as well as in common um, uh, common platform also like magazines and other uh, sources as well yes that's a great 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 result such an important um, concept to, to help us understand and, and to identify solutions that are already in place. We're not, we're not uh, needing to uh, send out uh, various uh, wild uh, geoengineering schemes. Uh, exactly. Now, now, can we talk a little bit maybe about uh, tropical forests and the importance of tropical forests? I mean, it's something that one does hear a lot about. One does hear about, you know, uh, the destruction of the Amazon from various different uh, perspectives um, and so, so I, I guess there is some awareness around that. Can you talk a little bit, um, both of you, about, about the importance of tropical forests uh, and the role in global warming? Well, uh, so my role in Project Drawdown is as an advisor on primary forests, in particular on, on tropical forests. Um, and that came about very randomly. I was copied in on an email thread that that Paul Hawken was on, and uh, and next thing I knew, um, I had the pleasure of working with the Drawdown crew on on this topic, and uh, I really appreciate and, and agree with what what Mamta was saying earlier about about the the land use sector broadly, and this applies to to primary tropical forests and tropical forests in general, um, which is that part of the problem, uh, a huge part of the problem, and uh, one that gets a lot of publicity is the problem of, of tropical deforestation, um, clearing land uh, primarily for uh, for agriculture, making space for, for industrial agriculture, um, large plantations. Um, and that is, everyone agrees, uh, a, a a very big problem. Um, the the problem that gets less attention and that's less well understood is the degradation issue. And uh, what has been emerging over over the last few years is that while a significant percentage of the problem is is in fact deforestation, um, which emits a lot more carbon than degradation per hectare, when you aggregate the millions and millions of hectares that are being degraded globally, um, the emissions from degradation are in fact comparable and in some places, in some regions, uh, as high as deforestation. Um, and the, the point here is not only that degradation is a problem, but also that primary forests in particular have the highest carbon stocks. So a primary forest will have 30% more carbon than a degraded tropical forest. And therefore, in a, in a climate emergency where we have a very limited carbon budget within which to work to transition to renewable fuels, um, 
in a situation where climate change is worsening more rapidly than, than anticipated, we have very little time and we have a very strong incentive to keep those very high carbon stocks intact in, in primary force. And so that emerged as an important solution is not to degrade primary tropical forests because these are places where you have this very high concentration of, of values, not just, not just very high carbon stocks, but very high freshwater quality, a very high biodiversity, so a huge concentration of different plant and animal species. Uh, these are often the homelands of indigenous peoples. So you have this, this uh, sort of hyper concentration of values in, in these primary tropical forests in addition to their, to their carbon values. Um, and so that became uh, an important focus in my work. Um, and, and the message that emerges is that the primary tropical forests are, uh, are important, uh, critically important, and we don't want to lose them by clearing them completely, and we don't want to degrade them either. Yes, yeah, so I could just jump in there and, and, and could you just maybe dig in a little bit the difference between primary and secondary forests and why that matters? Right. So uh, a primary forest is a forest that, that has been uh, regenerating itself naturally, that uh, has not been subject to um, industrial scale uh, uh, degradation. Uh, it still contains all of its plant and animal species. There are a few, if any, invasives um so and it is a you know it's a forest that's been um undisturbed or very lightly disturbed uh, for a long period of time um and why that matters is that forests um tend to create their own soil conditions they tend to create their own microclimates they have complex ecological interactions they have different species that act as pollinators, as seed dispersers, as nutrient cyclers. Um, so it's a complex system, and it is also a system um, that, when uh, maintained, has a lot of resilience. Um, so a primary forest with all its plant and animal species, with all its biodiversity, uh, and with its you know, ecosystem integrity, um, is more resilient and it tends to have higher carbon stocks, um, and it, uh, it tends to be resistant to natural disturbance um, or able to recover more easily. Um, and so, you know, resilience and high carbon stocks are critical in, you know, in a, in a climate um, uh, change crisis, um, both for mitigation purposes and for adaptation to, to a changing, rapidly changing climate. So the, the ecosystem integrity and the biodiversity of the forest lead to higher carbon stocks and lead to higher resilience. And so, you know, the, the, from, a, from an investment risk standpoint, your safest investment from a, you know, from a forest perspective is in a primary forest rather than a degraded forest, which is lower in carbon stocks and more vulnerable. Um, so the, it's really important to, to maintain a focus on, on primary forests. It's not an exclusive focus. There are many other land uses we should be looking at, and that's why Project Drawdown is so brilliant in this respect. Um, but primary forests are, are especially important um, because of these higher values and because there are so few of them left. Can you give us an idea of the scale of deforestation affecting primary forests? Yeah, so just to provide an idea of, of the numbers, uh, we're losing about 5.5 million hectares of 
tropical forest every year. And about two and a half million of that is primary tropical forest. Um, the problem with those numbers is those are government numbers um, self-reported. And in some years, governments uh, choose not to report on primary forests. Uh, and some governments use different methodologies for their reporting. So the numbers are likely underestimated. Um, it, we're likely losing quite a bit more primary tropical forest than that. Um, and so that, that contribution to emissions is very substantial because primary forests have the highest carbon stocks in terms of, of biomass. Um, so that's, that's a big, that's a big uh, contribution to, to annual emissions. But the other point and the other side of the story is that we're not just losing primary forest through deforestation. We're also losing it through degradation. That's very interesting. Um, what, what are the sources of degradation and are there scales of degradation? Yes. Yeah, so the, the sources of degradation, um, uh, vary. Um, one important source is is commercial logging, so selective logging, where uh, they're not clearing the forest completely, but they're taking out individual trees. And and that that source of, of degradation, the logging, uh, brings with it a number of other forms of degradation. So often once the logging roads get built, um, that brings with it um, hunting, it brings with it um, fire uh, from people moving into the area, uh, it brings with it smaller scale deforestation and, and so on and so forth. So there are the direct impacts from the logging and there are indirect impacts from the access being created. There is also uh, slash and burn or Sweden agriculture, which is which is uh, significant and it and it varies per region. Um, so, um, but the 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 important finding is that from the primary forest standpoint is that the commercial logging um, has not proven to be sustainable in a primary tropical forest. Um, in other words, try as you may, whatever best practices you use, um, the commercial species that you are targeting in a logging operation will uh, no longer be commercially viable after two or three logging rotations. In other words, the big trees that you cut down in a primary tropical forest don't grow back um, if your logging intensity is too high. And uh, for the most part, logging intensities are too high all over the tropics. Um, and if you made the logging sustainable by reducing the logging uh, intensity and by increasing your logging rotation to 60 to 100 years, which is what it would take to make it sustainable, then you make the logging unprofitable. Um, so the, the important message here is that what, one of the key findings is that industrial or commercial logging, um, even if it's selective logging, even if it's with best practices, degrades the forest to the point where the primary forest no longer recovers, um, and you permanently degrade its ability to store, to store carbon, um, or at least over very large timescales. So the, uh, the, the, the degradation comes from a number of different sources. The one that's the most concerning and that we can do the most about most easily is, is, the, uh, is the commercial logging, which, uh, which we now know is not sustainable. That's a fascinating insight. Um, it means that sustainable logging as a concept doesn't exist in a sense. It's, um, 
it, it's a contradiction or it's, it's not a possibility. Um, could you briefly touch on monitoring this issue globally? Uh, how can the scale of deforestation and land degradation actually be measured? Well, the, the, uh, the scale of the deforestation is, is relatively um, easier to, to measure um, than the scale of, of the uh, degradation. Um, and the, the reason for that is that you can measure the loss of forest from a satellite uh, relatively, uh, relatively easily. Um, the degradation is much harder to, to measure because that occurs beneath the canopy, um, or at least the canopy remains more or less um, intact with some gaps, but, but without the major gaps you get with, with deforestation. Right, right. So overall, this question of land use and tropical forests is number five, I think, in terms of solutions, with something in the order of 60 gigatons of reduced CO2, giving it tremendous scope as a solution. But in the book, there are no global costs and savings data. So I suppose the finances are difficult to pin down. Is that right? Yes, it was really difficult uh, uh, to estimate. We have two different solutions. So one, uh, I think for uh, the primary tropical forest, which Cyril has also answered, and I agree with most of his uh, uh, recommendations and points that, you know, it's how important that is. Uh, so we, we have club the entire forest, whether it is primary tropical uh, uh, or primary temperate and boreal together. And the solution is forest protection, that we need to protect the intact forest. And uh, so one one is that solutions. And the other one, which you're talking about and which is ranked as five, is the restoration of the degraded tropical forest. So we have a huge amount of tropical forests which are degraded. And uh, there are now commitments, if you refer to the bond challenge as well as the New York Declaration, that by 2020 or by 2030, so and so million hectares have to be restored back uh, to to. The, to the secondary forest and there are different ways of doing that there could be an active restoration measures as well as passive so at project drawdown we have considered the commitments made uh, at the country level and considering that maximum land area and how much percentage is for tropical forest which was maximum around 93 percent so doing that analysis at the global level we come to the conclusion that um, just by natural regrowth in a period of 30 years, in a plausible conservative um, scenario, we can lead to uh, an emission reduction of, um, you said that 61.23 gigatons. And that's why it has been, you know, uh, one of our top uh, land use uh, solu uh, solutions, which is ranked five in the overall order. Right, right. Very interesting. And how are we doing with, with reforestation? Um, I, is it a combination of reforestation and uh, afforestation? Um, but wh whatever, um, in, in terms of that, uh, uh, is there momentum uh, here? And is this something that we can expect to see more of? Uh, afforestation, we have a separate solutions and uh, tropical forest restoration as a separate one. And we also have a temperate forest restoration. But I see, uh, you know, the commitments are much higher for tropical forest restorations. And not only the commitment, there are, uh, you know, uh, there are trackers where countries are giving, you know, updates yearly that how much effort they are putting actually uh, to uh, towards the restoration measures. And uh, there are uh, many organizations nationally and internationally working on those issues. So, 
as a momentum i think now recently um, there people are now working on in, on that direction and it seems that you know um, that i mean some countries should be able to meet their targets and the commitments they have made towards uh, towards that towards bond challenge especially latin america they are doing quite well uh, in restoring their forests yeah yeah so just to provide a, an idea of scale there's you know about 400 million hectares of forest that's that's in uh logging operations and and more that's already been degraded so so the opportunity in the tropics for restoring um is extremely large scale um and uh this goes back to what i was saying before that the deforestation is an enormous problem um but the degradation is is also when you consider it over very large areas um you know the scale of the amazon basin or the congo basin or forests in in southeast asia um the restoration solution as mamta said is is incredibly important as a result of that um i i think and and there is progress being made the the concern i have is that when people say restoration um they use the term um sometimes without specifying precisely what they mean and restoring forest um when i think about that i you know automatically i think of ecological restoration which is bringing the forest back to its most natural condition uh hopefully over time getting it back to primary forest um but a lot of people don't think of it necessarily that way maybe they restore it for a period of time and then use it for something else um maybe they mean restoring land to agricultural productivity so they're talking about you know agroforestry or or plantations and you know we need a little bit of of everything and we do need agroforestry and we do need some plantations um but the the basic point i'm trying to make is that we need to specify what we're talking about when we say restoration because people use the term in very different ways and um they you know it's a little bit like the term sustainable development well what does that mean what is it it looks very different to different people depending on who you're talking to yeah yeah very interesting very interesting can i add a, a small point over there uh, i agree with uh, serial on that and that's why we had the project drawdown has a, a a land allocation model where we have allocated specific piece of land whether it is forest grassland and cropland to specific solutions in order to avoid any sort of double counting and our analysis has shown that currently uh, around 800 million hectares of forests are degraded so as you said that there are and n number of restoration measures so we have allocated 500 million hectare uh, based on those uh, bond challenge and new york declaration uh, for restoration uh, forest restorations and the remaining 300 for afforestation and agroforestry solutions yes yes very interesting now i i was going to talk about this a bit later but it does seem because uh, the, the the importance of tropical forests really that there is this question about the, these resources being should we say in the global south and uh, issues around uh, managing resources i guess that are crucial for the global climate um i'm wondering whether you have anything to say about that well i'll, I'll just jump in here um my focus with drawdown is is an advisor on on tropical forest issues um but there's long been this this perception that you know in talking about climate change we need to focus on the tropics because that's where the most deforestation occurs and that's where you know the most emissions are are coming from um and that's a myth i mean if you look at 
the condition of forests globally. Um, we've lost half of the planet's forests about already. Um, and of what remains, it's, you know, it's roughly 30% uh, uh, of Earth's terrestrial surface. And of that 30% of forest, um, you know, uh, roughly 30% is still in very good condition, primary forest. And that's, you know, that's distributed roughly half-half between the north and the south. Um, and if you look at temperate forests, you know, there's, there's roughly a quarter of tropical forests are primary, roughly 30% of the boreal forests are primary, and only about 15% of temperate forests, you know, in North, primarily in North America and, and Europe, but, but also in a few other places around the world, only 15% is, is, uh, is primary in temperate forests. So the idea that, that you know, this is a, a South, you know, Southern resources problem, um, I think is one that we want to, we want to get past. I mean, it's, it is clear that tropical deforestation is very high, but we really need good forest management and better protection globally. Um, so it, it's, I think it's very important not to think of this, um, you know, exclusively or, or even primarily as a, as a tropical problem. Um, the, the boreal forest, which is, you know, a, a vast resource stretching from Alaska to Quebec and from Norway to, you know, to Kamchatka is, you know, is only about 30% primary forest. Um, so it's a it's a global problem. Absolutely, absolutely. You mentioned the question about uh, restoration, forest restoration, and um, ambiguity around that. Is this an area where we are beginning to get a better understanding of how this operates and how to do it well, or is it something that we've always known about? Or can you sort of maybe just uh, talk briefly about our evolution of knowledge about this? Um, well, I think um, I think the the point here, and and uh, Mamta can can of course, add to this because my, my focus is quite narrow on, on primary forests. Um, but I think there is an increase in understanding of, of the importance of restoration from a mitigation standpoint and a, you know, a better understanding of, of how to do it. Um, the, the best case scenario for, for reforesting an area in the tropics is an area of land that has been abandoned for whatever reason, maybe for the, the agricultural uh, practices that were there before were economically marginal. Um, and that that area of land is is near enough uh, to a primary forest patch um, or an area of primary forest that can that can serve as kind of a seed bank um, for the reforestation. So the, the best case scenario is you've got an area that's been cleared it's near to an area of primary forest where you have both the seed bank and the seed dispersers so the birds and the mammals and you know the uh that will that will eat fruit and disperse seeds um and you know an area where you have a reasonably good chance that it will be um able to recover over decades um and if you allow that natural regeneration to occur um you know that's that's essentially there. Obviously, maybe some planning costs and and some you know governance um, and protection costs. But in terms of the reforestation itself, that can occur naturally, and and that's that that you know is is basically free. Um, when you have to actively 
restore the forest, it gets more, much more expensive because now you have to actively plant seeds, you have to control for invasives, you have to control for fire, um, and that can very rapidly start to cost thousands of dollars per hectare. Um, so, in you know, in, in some cases, that's that's the only option um, because the land was more degraded and the forest is not coming back as quickly because, you know, maybe it's a little bit too far away from the nearest forest. Um, but the knowledge of how to do these things is growing. Um, there are a number of different organizations that are mapping opportunities, uh, low-cost opportunities for reforesting um, uh, in the tropics. Um, and there's a better sense of not only uh, where these opportunities are, but the the scale at which it's it's feasible, um, which is much larger than uh, than than people thought. I mean, there's there are uh, uh, very large areas in the tropics where land has been um, abandoned and where forests could come back um, at at a relatively low cost. I can add on to that. Yes, the uh, the knowledge of these issues are evolving. I wouldn't say that we have an enormous amount of knowledge base, especially when it comes to the costing of these measures, because those restoration measures are so uh, variable. Uh, it's what type of restoration measures you are actually implementing, where you are implementing, and uh, what is the capacity, and who is going to bear that cost, whether it is uh, a farmer or individual-led uh, operation, or it is you know governed by some agencies, whether it is a private agency or a government agency. And um, also the restoration of uh, opportunities or the measures, you know, as WRI has defined into three Types. And as uh, Cyril was also saying, you know, it also depends at what uh, the degraded land uh, is lying where, whether it is in close proximity with a primary forest or where. So, for example, the wide scale restoration, remote restorations are are the places where we can think about the natural regrowth and allowing those uh, degraded forests to regrow back. And those forests will eventually take uh, due course of time and will become the you know secondary forest in, in a span of time. And the tropical, the, the good thing about the tropics is that the rate of carbon sequestration in those degraded forests is comparatively higher than temperate and boreal. So these forests grows uh, comparatively faster than uh, then a forest, then a reforestation measures taken place either in temperate and boreal. Uh, but we also have mosaic restorations where people are often going with agroforestry options because there you have uh, in between uh, villages and agricultural and those kind of systems. So you, you don't have a vast uh, deforested area. So th those deforested areas are somewhere overlapping with other land uses. So you have to look for other options over there. But uh, at Project Drawdown, because we haven't done the, uh, the uh, financial analysis just because we were not too sure of, at the global scale what is the initial cost, uh, what will going to be the operational cost and what will be the net profit margin as there is a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty associated with the restoration measures. Right. Yeah, and just to add one, one point here, um, as Mamta was saying, there's a lot of uncertainty over what the costs are and where. Um, and that's absolutely true, and it's and it's an issue um, at a at a very broad scale. I think we can say something important, though, which is that globally, right now, the incentives, the subsidies, are skewed um, massively towards industrial agriculture. Um, sure. And if we could flip those subsidies um, at least a little bit, um, 
to support communities, indigenous peoples, farmers, etc., um, in their efforts to bring forests back, I think it could have a massive, massive impact. But we worry, we wring our hands about you know deforestation and about the costs of, of restoration and so on and so forth. And at the same time, there's a huge economic bias towards the very activities that are causing those problems. Um, and if we could reverse that and start to reverse you know, getting the funding to the people on the ground who can make a difference quickly, um, I think that would be hugely significant. Agreed. Great, great. I'd like to ask a question about peatlands. And I know some forests contain peat in the soil because this is a tremendously important carbon sink. Could you talk about what we need to do here? Yes, we need to leave them alone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that's a very straightforward story. There's there's uh, ten times as much carbon per hectare in, in peatlands than there are in uh, uh, you know forests without peat in the soil, and um, you know degrading those forests and and draining uh, the peatlands um, so that they start emitting is is madness. Um, they're they're a relatively small percentage. It's a little bit like mangroves. They're a very small percentage of of Earth's surface, um, but at the same time, they're extremely high value, um, and it, it makes absolutely no sense, um, precisely because they're small, to you know to even consider um, degrading them. Um, th th these are these are no-brainer, irreplaceable, unique carbon stocks that need to be protected. And how is that going? I understand they're in pretty good shape. Well. Not really my area of expertise for the temperate and boreal forests, um, but but they are being degraded in the tropics. Um, and uh, there's, I think, more peat in in the boreal than there is in the tropics. Um, so it's it's very important to uh, to to protect those those peatlands. Sure. Um, and uh, maybe Mamta can can add to that. Yeah. So talking about first on the temperate, yeah, the the area compared to tropical is less, but you know the, the importance of an intact forest, and Cyril has also mentioned, not only considering the carbon potential, whether it is a stock or ongoing carbon sequestration, but also the ecosystem services they provide and which keep the resilience of those forest systems. You know, uh, most often in the last few years, we are hearing about the forest fires and pest and disease attack and so on. So these are, I, I'm not too sure, but somewhere is because of the ongoing degradation within those primary uh, intact forests. So we need to make sure and protect them in a way so that the resilience should be there. And coming back to the peatland. So peatland are really a very unique ecosystem uh, and mostly lying in the boreal and temperate region in, and also to some extent in the, in, in the South Asian part. Uh, it, they just cover 3% of the Earth's land area, um, you know, uh, considering its uh, uh, importance of the carbon. But the... Uh, with a, such a small area, the total carbon stock uh, is around 500 to 600 gigatons of carbon. It's such a huge, I mean, uh, quite comparable to the carbon which is stored in the entire forest area uh, globally. So you can imagine that if you lead to the deforestation of a peatland, how much carbon will be emitted into the atmosphere? And as you said that, how much are intact as of now? So luckily, still 85% of the world's peatland are intact. But the rate of degradation are still going on. And that is a point of worry that we can't degrade a resource which has such a high carbon stock and which you know leads to a one-time emissions of peatland degradation 
is such high that it can you know uh, i don't know the number but there are um, comparative figures that how much carbon which is lost per hectare from a peatland is equal to the emissions caused by so many uh, millions of uh, cars and transportation so that is the the scale of uh, peatland emission so we need to be really very very uh, serious now about these resources especially having such a high carbon content absolutely absolutely we spend a lot of time on forests and related areas just the tremendous importance they have but there are other resources that are also tremendously important like mangroves and so forth we talked a little bit of the economic incentives but is there anything you'd like to add about the governance side of things Again, a wide-ranging question with many variations, I'm sure, but are there any general comments you'd like to make, perhaps allowing for distinctions between different regions? In the tropics, uh, and I wouldn't want to suggest that governance is only a problem in the tropics because it's absolutely a a problem around the world. Um, So I'm I'm absolutely not zeroing in on the tropics as the only place where where governance is is a problem. that said, in tropical forests and remote areas, governance remains weak, and it's a and it's a problem. Um, the majority of timber coming out of tropical forests is illegally logged. Um, so, so governance in the forest sector in the tropics remains a a, a very very big challenge, um, and uh, it's it's a challenge that a number of uh, countries are, are are working on, and there are some attempts from consumer countries, in, in particular in, in Europe and the United States, to try to confront the illegal logging problem. But uh, it doesn't seem like it's a problem that will go away anytime soon. Um, uh, the reality is that many of the places where deforestation and degradation is occurring are remote and difficult to get to. And so by definition, governance will be will be a little bit weaker in, in those places. Yeah, so just to add on that, forest protections, we have that solution. But we are also kind of aware that, you know, the governance, uh, the strict governance is still an issue. Even we, if we are protecting a forest, we are kind of clear that there is some sort of degradation which is ongoing. So we need some strict measures so that these, those, you know, the governance which we are co- saying that you know we have to protect those uh, forest area that that should be ensured and i believe um, there are some new remote sensing and these kind of technologies may provide some help in monitoring of our uh, forest resources whether they are protected or restored and this will help us to better um, implement our uh, solutions and also in I, I would like to refer the indigenous people land management because our analysis has shown that the the way of their management is comparatively more sustainable than a forest which is uh, just protected by a, a by by a national uh, national body so uh, it is, if possible, we have to give them uh, the proper rights and titling to these indigenous people and local people so that they can manage those resources, which they are doing quite some time, for centuries, I believe, their, their generation and generation, and they should keep on doing that. So it's about how to manage those resources, how to well protect uh, either through the indigenous people or through the national uh, bodies. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, it's it's. I think it's a very important point that that uh, we know governance is weak, and at the same time, there has been a lot of research on the governance mechanisms that are, in fact, effective in tropical forests. Um, 
for keeping them uh, in good shape. And and indigenous people's management is is one example. Um, there are also a lot of examples of, uh, of community conservation initiatives that are also very successful. And we also know that protected areas, um, when they're adequately funded and staffed, um, can also be very effective at, at uh, keeping tropical forests and, and nature generally, globally, um, in good shape. So it's, you know, just to revert back to the point earlier, if we can shift incentives to support those governance mechanisms that actually work for protecting nature, including tropical forests, um, we can have a very large impact very quickly. And, and that also builds on Mamta's original point, which is land use has emerged as a huge part of the problem and also mm. a huge part of the solution. Sure, true. Both sink and source. Yes, yes. I might just add one question. Pricing ecosystem services. You've talked and, and it's very interesting to hear this question about incentives. You come across it again and again. Do you have uh, thoughts on uh, pricing ecosystem services and what role that might play in dealing with some of these issues? I think this this will actually accelerate. This will increase the momentum of protecting our reforestation because there are a lot of risk associated with these restoration measures. So these, and we need some sort of mechanisms and ecosystem services, which are people just say that, you know, these are, whether it is water improvement, soil improvement, biodiversity, species, and all that, it's difficult to quantify them, but there are now research and many uh, people have come across how to quantify that. So if we are able to quantify those ecosystem uh, services, and then see, it's just not about protecting, it's just not about restoring, but there are these associated cascading benefits and there is a quantitative uh, you know um, implication on that so i think that definitely helped the implementer to you know to keep on doing those restoration measures because ultimately everyone talks about profit so uh, so the, the the farmer also has to see the sustainability of his livelihood so i think these ecosystem payment services should actually uh, help uh, in progressing this direction yeah, I mean, I, I I broadly agree. I mean, I think the the point is is not whether you know valuing ecosystem ecosystem services is is intrinsically good or bad. Um, I think the point is that there is tremendous value being provided by nature to people, and we need to you know support the people financially who are. Uh, protecting nature and and sustaining those services um, exactly how we do that we can we can debate um, but but the the basic point is uh, we need to be subsidizing the people who sustain these services not subsidizing the people who are degrading and destroying them very true very true and most of the time the funders are so you know comfortable with the renewable sector is that because the their costing is so easy you know implementation of one uh, a solar roof tower and other so that's quite the, the cost calculation is quite easy so we need a research and uh, proper knowledge in ecosystem services so that the funders should also feel comfortable in funding these uh, restoration measures and in the land use sector Absolutely, absolutely. Just before we finish, are, are there any other final points that either of you would like to add? As an end note, I just want to say that we need, you know, uh, that the national and international uh, discussions around the climate change should really understand these uh, land use resources. And uh, we should have, you know, some higher and uh, 
sensitivity towards the seriousness of the problem associated with these land use uh, resources, either it is greenhouse gas emissions or global warming. So we need to be more sensitive about these resources. Yes, I, I agree. And I would just add that um, from a land use perspective, uh, what we have learned is that there are ecosystems around the world, whether they're primary forests or peatlands or mangroves um, or wetlands that are of extraordinary value and importance, um, both for climate change and other ecosystem values and for and for social um, uh, considerations and that are, you know, the homelands of, of communities and indigenous peoples. Um, those places uh, need to be protected and we need to shift the incentives to make sure that that, that, that can happen. Um, and, you know, unfortunately our track record in trying to, you know, conduct uh, industrial activities in these very sensitive places is terrible. Um, and we've now run out of time. Uh, we're in a climate change crisis and we're in an extinction crisis and the two are closely related. And we need to take special care with the places that are extremely high in, in a range of ecosystem service values. Um, and we need to do more to restore the places that we've already degraded. Yeah, and just one last point. Uh, we don't have to really think about that this is you know within whether it is in within our national boundaries or not because we are talking about or we are dealing about a global problem as the and the impact is in the atmosphere in the environment which everyone is feeling whether any part of the world so we need global actions and global commitments yes well on that note uh, i think we will leave it there for today that's a very uh deep and fascinating discussion of a vital topic and um, thank you so much for your time today and all the great work you're doing to communicate and share uh, the importance of the, the these land use solutions thank you both very much thank you thank you very much thanks Cyril. thank Vogel. it was really nice to talk to you both thank you for listening to the drawdown agenda podcast i hope you found it interesting we would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play. <laughs>